I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, all you anti-heroes out there? Doc Askins here bringing you another Q5 podcast episode where I ask five of my favorite questions to people that I think are awesome. I got a treat for you today. I've got Robert Rush on the podcast with me. He is a committed attorney who ardently supports opening access to psychedelics, reforming drug policy, and defending his clients. With a firm belief in cognitive liberty and personal autonomy, he champions these causes through his legal practice. Operating primarily virtually and based in Denver, Colorado, Robert represents an extensive spectrum of clients in the burgeoning psychedelic field, including therapists, healing centers, facilitators, nonprofit organizations, and entrepreneurs. A proud University of Colorado Law School graduate, Robert's legal career spans over a decade in complex, high-stakes commercial litigation. In 2015, he shifted his focus to representing clients in the cannabis industry, a practice that has since evolved to center mainly on those working within the psychedelic domain. As the chair of the New York City Bar Association Psychedelic Law Subcommittee, Robert tirelessly advocates for reforming psychedelic laws in New York and beyond. When not diligently working for his clients, Robert can be found exploring nature, foraging for edible and medicinal mushrooms and plants. His multifaceted interests and passion for his field make him a valuable ally in the legal complexities of the psychedelic space. Robert, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome, my friend. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. So let's get things rolling with question number one. What's your story? My psychedelic story kind of begins with with a hippie in high school who turned me on to a, a hit of LSD uh, during my third period gym class. And he, 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 he sold me a hit of LSD <laughs> and he said, don't take the whole thing in school if you're going to, only take a half. Well, being the knowledgeable <laughs> person I was at the time, and I, I went to my fourth period study hall, tore it in half, and uh, took half of it as advised, and um, you know, very scientifically looked at the <laughs> clock and said, well, this is 15 minutes, nothing's happened. 20 minutes, I'm not feeling anything, and a uh, damn hippie ripped me off. Uh, so I, I took the other half then. And then 45 minutes later, the 
the uh, study hall period ends. I, I walk out into the crowded, bustling hallway, start to walk up the stairs, and boom, everything hits right then. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then I went off to my English class where they were reading uh, Hamlet. That was a uh, that was an interesting experience sitting there hanging out through the reading of Hamlet and through the rest of the afternoon and uh Poor Horatio. School, but I knew him well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um I tried my best to be uh Rosencrantz and Gildestern and kind of hang out in the the sides and not be too involved that day and observe more, but smart um, move. Yeah, it's a very interesting experience, and you know, I was like, "This is a really fascinating uh, substance." And uh, later on, I got turned on to the Grateful Dead and uh, started following the Grateful Dead, and then college touring with the Grateful Dead, and um, from there, I just kind of more embraced the uh, the psychedelic uh, movement and the history of psychedelics, and I uh, was very interested in the uh, the roots of the LSD culture with the Mary. Pratt Pranksters and Ken Kesey and the early Grateful Dead and their notion of kind of Johnny Apple seeding and spreading psychedelics throughout the country as a way to evolve society. And now here we are, you know, 30 years later, and we're we're seeing this renaissance and this evolution. And once again, those same thoughts and those same ideas are kind of coming around. Eventually, I decided to go to University of Colorado, where I did my undergrad there, and uh, went to law school. Took a hiatus from law school to operate a grow for several years in Colorado. So I have that under my belt also. When my wife got pregnant, I wasn't going to chance uh, operating a grow and having a child and all that. So hung up the growing and finished the law degree and, you know, practiced law for um, a decade doing complex commercial litigation, which was not really my passion. Making incredibly wealthy people incrementally wealthier was not really where my uh, heart was at. And then in 2015, like many families in this country, my family experienced a tragedy with one of our members in the family overdosed on heroin that was tainted with fentanyl. They became addicted to after being prescribed Oxycontin for an injury and had it abruptly taken away. And the impact of seeing his two young children at the funeral really profoundly touched me. And since then, it's been a passion of mine that I realize we need different solutions and different options to the current mental health crises this country is experiencing. And there's so much pain, there's so much addiction, there's so much lack of connection that I really wanted to pursue something in substances I thought could help alleviate these addictions and these mental health issues. And at the time, cannabis was the kind of the only legal game in town to really work in. There wasn't really anything psychedelic-wise going on. So in 2015, I started practicing um, cannabis law, working in that space. And 
from there, my practice has evolved and shifted, and now it's focused almost entirely on psychedelics and working for both representing clients, working in the space, trying to help people manage their business enterprises or therapeutic enterprises while staying safe and avoiding um, either civil or criminal liability, and then also acting as an advocate to try to reform the laws and move the uh, ball forward. Yeah, you seem like you would be uniquely positioned to comment on the state of reform in the country in that regard. Do you have anything that you could enlighten us about in that? Sure. There's a lot happening. There's a huge amount of interest. There's a huge amount of passion. There's, we have all of our decriminalization efforts that are going on on city basises around the country. And then also you have your statewide reform efforts like 109 in Oregon that created a structured therapeutic system for psilocybin. And then you have Prop 122, the Natural Medicine Health Act in Colorado that opened up beyond a therapeutic structure and the licensed regulatory framework for that, which is part of it. But there's also the decriminalization personal use aspect of it, which totally expands everything that you can look way beyond just the sort of medicalization. And there's a lot of conflict that goes on in the movement between the people who are sort of decriminalization, they don't want a structured regulatory environment, and then you have the the hardcore sort of, this should be a pharmacological approach, and this should be registered, and there's very strong arguments on both sides. and. I try to walk the line between the best I can and embrace both of their positive points. Yeah, I try to maintain that integrated perspective in the middle there. That's impressive. Is, is that the way forward in your mind as well, trying to bring the two sides together? I think absolutely. The, neither of them is palatable when you take them to the extremes. A complete lack of any oversight whatsoever causes me concern because I you know, as an attorney, I've heard many horror stories in the space from people who've encountered people who weren't ethical actors working as either some sort of a religious leader or acting as a facilitator. And then also, I've, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, too, is if you the complete medicalization aspect of it you're looking at, it's going to be prohibitively expensive. There's going to be many people who can't access therapy. And also, too, there's a sort of often a gatekeeper mentality associated with that that becomes troubling. I, I embrace more of the cognitive liberty approach that I think people should have a right to autonomy over their bodies to use whatever substances they so choose. And we counterbalance the dangers that that involves with education, safe access, harm reduction, and um, access to treatment when the person feels ready for treatment if they feel like they have a need for some sort of uh, addressing some sort of a substance use issue. So a tertium quid, a third way of sorts uh, between the extremes would be the way forward in your mind. 
think that's good. I appreciate you sharing your story, especially starting with that uh, high school hippie friend. That's a, that's a good story. Looking back at your memories is fun. The second question, though, is about your intentions. Where are you headed and what are you looking to do in the future? My goal is to put forth the very best efforts I can to build a ethical, fair system of access to psychedelics, whether it's for spiritual use, personal growth, healing, medicinal, mental health approaches, um, or just recreational use. And that's one of my goals to structure this so that we could build this the best way possible and protecting a lot of the people out there interested in doing this. There's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of people who may have good intentions, but don't really understand the legality behind these substances. And the and in the majority of jurisdictions, the quite draconian consequences for, you know, ending up on the wrong side of the law. A lot of what I do is kind of, my goal is to create something that I call, and what I do now is legal harm reduction. And working with people the best I can to, you know, make sure that they they stay safe and stay outside of law. And what exactly we're building, no one knows. But my my intention is to build something that serves mankind at the fundamental core. Yeah, that's an interesting phrase, legal harm reduction. I know some of the audience will be familiar with psychedelic harm reduction where, you know, there's a tent at Burning Man for people who are having a difficult time and making sure people are hydrated and making sure that they're not near sharp objects or cliffs or, you know, those sorts of things that just mitigate risk uh, in a whole bunch of different ways. What does harm reduction look like in a legal psychedelic context? Well, for something like a, say, like a therapist type of situation, you're looking at what are the types of, first of all, what jurisdiction are you in and what is the type of practice you're engaged in? Are you a ketamine-assisted therapy practitioner? Are you a person who's working with clients, guiding them who supply their own psychedelic compounds? Each of them has their own sort of different, unique uh, risk profiles, making sure that they have standardized procedures in place, operating procedures, making sure that they have good intake procedures, screening procedures to make sure the people know exactly what they're getting into, what they're doing, what the risks are and what the benefits are with these substances, because with any substance, there's risk and there's benefits. And then making sure that there's informed consent between the uh, client and the practitioner. And that's all documented somewhere and that they, you know, that there's a agreement that they execute protecting both the participant and the uh, practitioner. So that's kind of my perspective on harm reduction. That other ones like a church, it may be making sure that they have their doctrinal documents in alignment, that they understand what the limits are on religious freedom practice in the uh, United States. And uh, and there are considerable limits that, and uh, that they don't have a... Uh, false sense of security and false sense that they're protected by something that they might not be. That's a lot of knowledge you're dropping there. I appreciate that. 
strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. So the, the third question kind of bridges between the past and the future by asking, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful that I'm here today. I'm grateful that I can see, I can hear, I can have a conversation with you. I have healthy children. You know, my family's healthy. No one's experienced any serious health issues. I've got food, a roof over my head, uh, a career, and I'm working in an area that if you would have told me in law school that this was even a possibility, I would have said you're absolutely insane. Psychedelic laws being a thing. Those are the things I'm grateful for. And with all that gratefulness, what are you creating? Creating, I'm working on several different things, working with several different clients in different areas, working with therapists, working with people, creating community-based centers for people to gather at, in addition to uh, healing centers when they come online in Colorado, once the all the regulatory structures are approved. Also working with um, a couple of nonprofits, helping them develop their structures and move forward with advocacy, working on trying to change the laws in New York. I work with uh, New Yorkers for Mental Health Alternatives, and we're working to reform the law in New York State. Uh, last year, the Burke Bill, which is a very structured, medicalized um, treatment model for psilocybin focused on first responders and veterans. At the beginning of the legislative session, there were, there were three co-sponsors for the bill. And when we finished at the end of this re uh, legislative session, there were 40 co-sponsors, including people from both sides of the aisle. So we've managed to move that there's traction where you're seeing interest from, you know, both red and blue, you know, stakeholders, which is, um, you know, it's progress. It's it's very exciting to see. It's a rare subject that brings uh, bipartisan support in the country and the current climate. If you had you know a crystal ball or a time machine or just a good guess what the next ten years of legal reform around psychedelics might look like in America, what would that guess sound like? I think it's going to very closely mirror cannabis. And it's going to unfold similarly, even though I view them as dramatically different substances. But it appears to be going along the same path that you, you know, you're seeing this medicalized model being put forth first. And then I think you're going to see kind of a broader adult use sort of aspect to it. And it's going to continue, I think, at the state level that I don't really... I don't predict, honestly, the federal government dramatically shifting on any sort of drug policy as much as I would like to see that done. I think we need comprehensive reform of the Controlled Substances Act. The nature of way substances are scheduled and I mean we're still we're at a point where cannabis is still a schedule one drug. You, even though there are 
FDA-approved medications from cannabis. The, the cognitive dissonance is just ridiculous. So I, I don't have great hope with that. I think you may see the Supreme Court possibly weigh in on religious use, and they have a very strong leaning towards religious freedom. We'll see if it continues onward beyond the Judeo-Christian sort of context into other religious practices from other cultures. But even that being said, there are people who are you know, Jewish congregations that argue that there's a historical basis for the use of psychedelics through um, you know, the Jewish tradition. We may actually see it presented to the court in a Judeo-Christian context. You mentioned some of the cognitive dissonance around FDA policies. What do you think are the barriers there, or the pain points that create that dissonance? I think part of it is the influence of the pharmaceutical industry and lobbyists. Uh, I don't think you can... The amount of money that is spent from the pharmaceutical industry to keep the current paradigm in place is, is massive. The amount of advertising that's put into place, there's a strong interest to keep psychedelics illegal. The pharmaceutical model doesn't work with the substance that actually cures an illness. You make money off of something that's patentable and keeps a person chronically ill and needing to use a substance for you know an ongoing basis. That's where your greatest revenue generation is at. And psychedelics just don't fit that. It'll be interesting to see what's happening with MAPS and if um, MDA is approved, because you look at their phase three clinical studies and, you know, after three doses, you know, I think it was 67% of the people no longer were considered suffering from PTSD under the DSM criteria and 88% uh, experienced a high degree of relief. How do you price something that's three treatments and it's done. You can see that the, the cost is going to be very high. Time will tell and it'll be interesting to see the stories that come out as reform rolls through the country. But that's the other aspect of it too, is there's this robust underground that's evolved and continues to evolve. And there's sort of two aspects of that that's positive and negative. Potentially, we have a large burgeoning underground that the qualifications sometimes for some of these people we we don't know uh, we we don't know whether they you know there's some things that are very fundamental aspects of treatment that to keep people safe like if a person's taking lithium they cannot take psilocybin if a person's on an SNRI or an SSRI they can't take plant-based ayahuasca that has an MAOI uh, in with it um, without running serious risk of serotonin syndrome, which is life-threatening. So if we have negative outcomes with these people or we have some really horrible bad actors that could push it back, but it also provides access to you know, for people at a much more affordable basis, I think in these, you know, I mean, for 50 bucks, a person can grow a lifetime supply of mushrooms in their closet. Yeah, that's the truth of the matter. And I don't know how like pharma, like pharma is going to, you know, work around that, you know, it's scarcity is part of their model. And Scarcity doesn't exist for something like psilocybin and, and, you know, to a lesser degree, also MDMA and, you know, the majority of other 
psychedelics out there. I mean, uh, MDMA is derived from uh, sassafras. There's a lot of chemistry steps between the two, but that's the uh, the plant basis there, right? I had an old hippie friend that always thought he always used to just say it grows in the dirt, man, and he thought that was that was sufficient. That was enough reason for you know, like changing all the laws everywhere. Like it just it grows in the dirt, man. How can you argue with that? Yeah, how can you how can you criminalize a plant? Yeah, it's um, you know they seem perfectly you know capable of criminalizing yeah. it. There's certain parts of dirt you're not allowed to go visit, right? Like we'll make laws around yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate all that. That's super enlightening. Thank you. Uh, that brings us around to our fifth and final question, Robert Rush. Who are you really? Who am I really? I'm a empathetic person who is very concerned with their friends, family, clients, well-being, invested in them, and with a hope that when hopefully many years down the road, the time comes that I'm no longer going to be journeying in this space, that I can look back and hopefully see some good that I've done. And that's my my fundamental goal. I also like to have fun too and, you know, have a good time out there. And, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, been to, I've been to go into, I, I still go to punk shows to get into the pit. And I, uh, you know, as well as going to, you know, jam band shows and festivals, like sort of, if anybody's going to be at uh, Saratoga for fish next week, uh, let me know and hit me up. <laughs> Playing the vacuum cleaner on the trampoline. That's a good time. I don't care who you are. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I want to have a good time and I want to have less things to apologize for on my deathbed. And no regrets. <laughs> no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got any final thoughts for our listeners? Don't allow the government to decide for you what your rights are. But do that cautiously, which is kind of sets up something that doesn't really help at all with <laughs> guidance-wise. Now, I think that people need to uh, really question why exactly things are the way they are, why the dominant paradigms are in place, why the power structures exist the way they do, and the question whether you have fundamental rights that you should be embracing. Yeah, I think it was Jesus that said you got to be as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove some of the time. And I think that probably applies to the context you're describing, huh? Yeah, just try to keep the serpent and a dove in different spaces. <laughs> they, they don't get along with each other. There's a way to integrate them inside us somehow, but I think it's purely symbolic, right? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. My son has a pet snake. I wouldn't put a dove near it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wise man. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you, Robert. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Doc out.